All right, I um, want to share, of course, a Christmas theme message. And, you know, Christmas is one of the most significant events on the, on the Christian calendar, the, the, the spiritual understanding of the way our year unfolds and the things we choose to remember during the course of the year. And rightly so, the birth of Jesus was um, at that point in history, the moment that he entered the world, it was the single most significant thing that had ever happened in all of human history. Um, there are many reasons for that, but the, the essential one is that the, the greatness of his person as he entered the world really defines the greatness of the event. And as believers, we rightly remember and emphasize and uh, celebrate his birth. But um, more important even than his birth, and uh, in the sense that there were additional events following his entry into the world that were even greater in significance than his birth, because think of it this way, if Jesus had been born with who he actually is, who he was on that night, who, re, who he continues to be, but had never accomplished the mission for which God sent him into the world, his birth wouldn't be remembered in the same way that we choose to remember it today. So what I wanna focus on today is just a short list. I wanna take you through 10 reasons why Jesus was born. And uh, we attach uh, great significance, of course, to each of these 10 reasons. These are defining his mission, defining the purpose for which he entered the world. Now, as we go through this list, just keep in mind, these are not the only 10 reasons that scripture identifies as the purpose behind his birth, his entry into the world. But I chose these 10 just for the sake of our time and because they, they rightly represent the heart of the message. The first one, uh, and I'm going to attach just one passage of scripture to each one of these 10 reasons. The first is found in the Gospel of Matthew chapter five. This is part of, of course, what we know as the Sermon on the Mount. This is Jesus himself teaching his disciples and what's proclaimed here is his own proclamation concerning himself. Uh, we'll read just verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So in making this declaration, we learn that Jesus came into the world. He was born for the purpose of fulfilling the law and the prophets. And what's meant by that is simply that the law and the prophets, if they were boiled down and they, they were reduced in a sense to the essential purpose of why God gave his law and why God spoke at key moments throughout all of old covenant history through men specially chosen to act as his, his uh, messengers, those that we identify rightly as prophets of God. In, in all of those proclamations that the law makes and all of the proclamations of the prophets, they're all pointed forward to a culmination point and that culmination point reaches its fulfillment in the arrival of one special person that came to fulfill all that the law and the prophets were building up to and were foretelling. In other words, it was his unique mission and he's the only one that could accomplish it. 
He's the only one that did accomplish it. He's the only one capable of accomplishing it is to fulfill all that we call the Old Testament was building up to and that in that sense, all of God's purposes in history center uniquely on him. Second passage, uh, John chapter 12, the Gospel of John. Verse 46, he came as light into the world. John chapter 12, verse 46. I have come into the world. This is, of course, the Lord identifying his own purpose in his arrival. I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Now, there's some implications connected to this declaration, and the implications are just as important to understand as the declaration itself. What's implied by his statement is that the world that he came into, the world that he arrived in, was a world shrouded in darkness, spiritual darkness. Now, it doesn't mean there was a complete and utter absence of spiritual light. As the first passage we we studied and, and, and briefly addressed, uh, referred to the law, the revelation of God's law, the revelation of God's messages through the prophets. Each time Moses opened his mouth and spoke on behalf of the Lord, each time the other prophets that we have represented in the Old Testament spoke for the Lord, there was a release of a portion of God's light. But those portions were in the midst of an entirely otherwise darkened world. And when Jesus arrived, the fullness for the first time in human history of God's light was released into this darkened world. But even so, only those, according to the declaration of the Lord Jesus here, only those who believe in him are promised to not remain in darkness. So we live in kind of a mixed spiritual world now. The world remains shrouded in darkness, but there is now true light in the world because of the arrival of the Son of God. And as we believe in him, we are removed from the darkness and placed in the light, and our eyes are opened and we're able to see the truth and we're able to understand the great purposes of God in history as fulfilled uniquely in the Son of God. The next passage, John chapter 18. This is a glimpse of a key moment in the life of the Lord Jesus as he was placed on trial. He found himself in this circumstance before a, a worldly governor, a governor representing all the might and the authority of the Roman Empire, which at that moment in history was a world-dominating empire. And in this circumstance, he stands before the governor, Pilate, and Pilate is putting him to the test to determine what he's going to do with him, whether he's going to execute him as the Jewish religious leaders in the city of Jerusalem were politically pressuring him to do. So in this, in this trial, Pilate then said to him in verse 37 of John 18, so you are a king? Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. 
For this purpose, I was born. And for this purpose, I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And then, of course, Pilate responded in his spiritual confusion, what is truth? So in this declaration, Jesus identifies that he functions uniquely in all of human history. Like what I'm doing this morning is I'm bearing witness to the truth just like Jesus was bearing witness to the truth. But he has a unique role in bearing witness to the truth. He is, it's, it's as if, the image here is as if truth itself was being put on trial. It's as if the ultimate truth that only God ultimately represents is being put on trial in front of the world that is darkened, shrouded in darkness and not seen and clearly perceiving it. Just like Pilate the judge was not clearly perceiving the truth even in this exchange with the Lord Jesus. And the purpose of the Lord Jesus as he, as he declares it is to be the ultimate witness in this world to the truth that comes from God. And he goes on to insist that nothing that contradicts his testimony, therefore, is true, and that everyone who hears his testimony is a person that is open to and aware of, by the grace of God, the truth that he represents. Now the next one, let's go back to chapter 12 of the Gospel of John. This is reason number four for his entry into the world. Jesus says in verse 47 of Gospel of John chapter 12, if anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Now this is a passage that's often misunderstood and twisted by those who don't understand the fuller context of scripture and other statements that Jesus himself made in other locations, in other places in the gospels. He's not saying that he has nothing to do with judgment. He'll, he's not judging now and he never will judge. We know that on the final day of history, the Lord will return in what we identify as his second coming. And following his second coming, he will act as judge over all the earth and over every human being that's ever lived in the course of world history. But here what he's emphasizing is what was the purpose behind his first coming, not his second coming. His first coming wasn't a coming for the sake of judgment. His first coming was a coming for the sake of salvation. To save those out of the darkness of the world, the fallenness of the world, the corruption of the world that could not possibly be saved by anyone else or in any other way. So he came to save the world. This isn't insisting or he is not declaring that he is intending to save every person in the world, but that he is the only true savior available to the world. The idea is the world is in huge trouble, 
though they're mostly unaware that they are, and that there is only one way out of that trouble, and he is the one that represents that singular way. He is the only savior for all the peoples of this world. Also in John chapter 12, let's look up at verse 27. Now is my soul troubled. This is the Lord Jesus speaking. Now is my soul troubled. We don't often think of Jesus having a troubled soul. And on a, on a daily basis, he did not. And certainly today, as he sits enthroned above all and everything, he is no longer troubled. But he was troubled on this day because this day the focus was on his impending death on the cross. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. As the Father is giving testimony to his accomplishments in his Son. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. So some in the crowd just heard the loudness of God's voice from heaven, but were confused by the sound they heard. Others actually recognized the voice, but understood it only to be an angel rather than God himself speaking. And Jesus responded and explained to them, in verse 30, Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. In other words, it wasn't a, a question in his mind about his relationship to God the Father and whether or not he was going to be able to fulfill his purpose, but because there were many present that did not yet fully understand who he was and what purpose he had come to fulfill, uh, the Lord himself spoke from heaven in order to confirm that great purpose in Jesus. Verse 31, now is the judgment of this world. And he's not referring here to what we call the final judgment that I just mentioned a moment ago. But there was a judgment that was about to happen and that judgment would be accomplished on the cross. And that judgment on the cross would be focused in a very specific and important and powerful way. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. He's referring here not to God as ruler of the world, but he's referring to Satan as what we would think of as an under ruler of the world because the world had fallen into such sin and corruption that Satan in a sense was the dominating ruling influence over the entire world. And he says, now will the ruler of this world be cast out? Something is going to dramatically change at the moment of the death of the Lord Jesus on the cross. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, not a reference to his ascension, but a reference to being lifted up on the cross. When I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Not every single person from the people, but he's going to draw people from every tribe, language, 
tongue and nation unto himself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Reason number six, Gospel of Luke. Chapter five. I'll read from verse 27. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi. Levi is the man that later became better known in the Christian community as Matthew, the writer of the, the Gospel of Matthew. Sitting, he saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. Keep in mind, backstory here is, in, Jew, in the Jewish community of that day, the tax collectors were the most hated individuals in the society. I mean, tax collectors are still not popular today. And if you happen to work as a tax collector, it's no, no slam on you intended. But the reason they were so hated was not just that they collected taxes, but they cooperated with the Roman government in order to collect large and unsustainable taxes from the Jewish people. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them. He answered in a way that only Jesus could, and he often did, kind of, kind of turning their complaint inside out and then aiming it as it should be back at their hearts. Those who are well have no need of a physician. Now, our, our culture has changed in this regard somewhat. How many, of you, how many of you have visited a doctor even when you were 100% healthy? Just in order to get what we call a checkup. Is there anything wrong with that? No, there's nothing wrong with that. But in the day that Jesus was speaking to, the culture that he was speaking to, no one went to the doctor just to get a checkup. The, the idea was, if you're well, you don't need to go to a doctor. What are you going to a doctor for? You're healthy. Now, again, there's nothing wrong with getting a checkup, but his words come with greater impact if you understand how doctors functioned in their culture and in their society. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. The implication is those who are sick do need a physician. This also, by the way, this is a side point, has nothing to do with our main study today. But there are some within the wider Christian community that believe if you just have enough faith, you never need to go to a doctor. Jesus himself approves of the wisdom of going to a physician, physician when you are sick. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, and he's not talking about physical health here at all. He's just using physical health as a touch point for them to potentially understand the greater issue of heart sickness, spiritual sickness. He said, I have not come to call the righteous, meaning those that 
presumptuously, arrogantly think they have no need of a spiritual physician. But I've come to call sinners to repentance. Sinners here, those that hear his message, are represented by those that are failures in life, but they know they are. And they know because of their own personal failures that they need a spiritual physician, someone outside of themselves to save them from the sickness that they are lost in. Number seven reason for why Jesus came. Turn over, if you would, to 1 Timothy chapter one. This is from the personal testimony of Paul the Apostle. And he's referencing here his earlier career when he was known as Saul of Tarsus, a Pharisee of the Pharisees and a persecutor of the early Christian community before the Lord intervened and interrupted his life on the road to Damascus. And in 1 Timothy 1.15, Paul writes this, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Now, there's two points of emphasis I want to make here. One is, and you've heard me make this emphasis before, but it's well worth repeating. It should be repeated regularly. Christ Jesus did not come into the world, according to 1 Timothy 1.15, in order to try to save sinners. Make a good effort, Lord Jesus. You're the only one who could possibly accomplish this. Try your best, and as long as you've tried your best, we'll be satisfied. When it came to me, I am most certainly glad that Jesus did not try his best to save me. I am most certainly glad that he effectively, like he did for the Apostle Paul, intervened and interrupted my life. My life was not going the way that it ended up going after he interrupted me. It was going an entirely different way, an entirely different direction, and I was most certainly lost like Paul the Apostle was, like Saul of Tarsus was. So Christ Jesus came in the world in order to effectively and actually and powerfully save sinners. And then the second point of emphasis is simply from Paul's own testimony when he says, of whom I am the foremost, Paul is essentially identifying himself prior to the road to Damascus as the number one sinner in the world. Now, how effectively did Jesus save the number one sinner in the world. He became the number one apostle in terms of fruit and effectiveness. It's just an amazing grace story that the Lord specializes in saving hard cases. And he chose Saul as a hardest case example and, and Paul even describes that in other places. He chose me to save as an example to everyone else so that no one would think, no, I, I'm, I'm too lost to be savable. Let's look at number eight from the Gospel of John again, chapter 10.
This is from a familiar image, uh, word picture that the Lord Jesus uses to, to describe his relationship with us as his people. In this chapter, he's describing himself as a, a shepherd of sheep and his people as the sheep which belong to him. And in verse 10, in the middle of this image, he says this, thinking of sheep and their value in the ancient world. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they, he's speaking of the sheep, of his flock, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. The idea is that if not for him, our lives were stolen lives. And our lives were ultimately ruined lives, destroyed lives. My life before the Lord interrupted and intervened and saved me was a wasted life. It was an utterly wasted life. And somehow, in saving me, the Lord, like, like the, the Humpty Dumpty nursery rhyme, was able to do what no human being could do and put me back together again, but actually made me better than I ever was to begin with. And that's the story of verse 10. And it's describing that that's the story of true salvation as each one of us experiences it. So the, the options in life are a stolen and ruined and destroyed life or a life now lived because of the saving intervention of the great shepherd, a life lived in the fullness of abundant life. He says, I came that they might have life and have it more abundantly. He uses a, a modifying word here, abundantly, which literally could be translated superabundantly. It means to overflow whatever it is that you're filling to such a point that the container can't contain it all. Now let's turn toward the back of the New Testament, toward the end, 1 John chapter 3. As the story of his, his birth continues, and the purposes behind his entry into this world, we'll read from 1 John chapter 3, verse 5. We're going to read a, a verse here in verse 5 that's right smack in the middle of a theologically, critically important teaching by the Apostle John. And he's making this teaching, I don't have time to develop the full context of the teaching, he's making the teaching because the church that he's writing to was being subtly attacked by false concepts of what salvation really accomplishes in the life and heart of a person that is born again. And the false concept was this, you can be truly saved but that salvation experience simply sets you free to live however you want to live and however you choose. And that if you choose to continue to sin, there is no ultimate problem with that because the Lord has already resolved the consequences for your sin on the cross. Therefore, you can do whatever you want. Now John, 
was deeply concerned about that false and destructive twisting of God's saving purpose in us. And so he is attacking that and destroying and dismantling that false concept. But verse 5 is what I want to particularly focus our attention on. 1 John 3, 5. You know, meaning this shouldn't be anything that should be questioned in any of our minds and hearts as believers. This was common knowledge among the, the believers of the first century, and it should be common knowledge among us today. Because this is an unchanging truth of salvation. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins. And in him, there is no sin. Now this description of he appeared in order to take away sins, it's talking not just about his appearance, of course, but it's, John is implying and connecting this to the greatest accomplishment of his appearance, which is the culminating point of why he came, his death on the cross. It's in his saving sacrifice on the cross that he has for those who believe the message of why he came, who he was, and what the cross really means, he has taken away their sins. It literally means to remove a burden off the shoulders of one onto the shoulders of another. And of course, we all bore the burden of our own sins prior to the day of our saving experience. And in the grace that God gave us to believe the message of what Jesus was accomplishing on the cross, Jesus removed that burden for, from us and for us and bore it upon his own body in his suffering on the cross. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins. That means that as we live out our Christian life and we understand that the new birth, we've emphasized this many times as a church, uh, the new birth is just the beginning of God's changing work in our lives. It's the first and great change but it leads to an ongoing progression of changes that we call sanctification, a continuing life of growing in those changes. And all that this verse implies for that process of sanctification is the Christian life is one in which you learn to sin less and less and less and less. Not one in which you learn to sin the same as you always did and feel fine about it because he's removed all threat of consequence from you. Now the last passage is also in 1 John 3. And I want to focus on verse 8. And this is really a larger thing than, I mean this has a tremendous impact and then therefore implications for us but this isn't really about us directly. It's about a greater purpose that he was accomplishing in his death on the cross. Let's read verse 8, 1 John 3, 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Now this phrase, the works of the devil, implies that 
just like God has been working in history, the devil has been working in history. And of course, they're at cross purposes with each other, each attempting to accomplish their own purpose in human history. And the devil's works are works that we see as early as the Garden of Eden and the exchange between the devil and Adam and Eve in the garden and all of the fallout from that exchange that fills human history. And just think about all of the sin that has ever been committed in human history. And I'm just talking here for our sake about all the blatant and obvious sins. I'm not even considering all the subtle and hidden sins. But think about all of the murders that have been committed in history. Think about all of the, the thefts that have been committed in history, all of the adulteries and fornications that have been committed in history. Just think about all of the idolatries that have been committed in human history. If we were to add them up, how many billions of sins are evident in human history as the testimony of the workings of the evil one to corrupt as much as he could possibly corrupt? But the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. The word destroy here means to loosen, or you could, you could use the word dissolve, or to melt away. The idea is for those who believe the gospel, and this is really only true for those of us who do believe the gospel, the works that Satan accomplished in my life have been melting away. There, and as it melts, there's much less progressively than there ever was at the beginning. I'm still not there yet, neither are you, but the idea is this is why the Lord came and his work, if we're going to pit one directly against the other, the work of the devil against the work of the Son of God, what we have to consider and what our hearts have to come into full understanding and appreciation of is which is the more powerful worker. Which one will win in this effort to accomplish their purpose in the course of human history? The Son of God appeared to destroy, to loosen, to dissolve, and to melt away the works of the devil and by God's grace, he did accomplish that and is continuing to work out in our lives that believe the gospel, the full implications of that. Let's pray. Father, I wanna thank you this morning for a moment in our lives to sing some wonderful Christmas carols that were filled with rich theological content of the true purpose of the arrival of your son into this world. I want to thank you for the, the children that um, practiced and shared from the perspective of their own little hearts, uh, beginnings of understanding of these things. I want to thank you, Lord, for the special music that brought glory to your name. And I want to thank you for the opportunity, Lord, to just camp for a moment on a reminder of 10 of the greatest reasons 
why you sent your son into this world to be born as a human being and to accomplish great purposes that were in your heart from before the foundation of the world, purposes that no other human being could accomplish. And I wanna thank you, Lord, for the accomplishment, the fulfillment, that, that the work has been finished from the day that the Lord Jesus hung upon the cross and then rose again from the dead. Blessed be your name this Christmas as we remember not just your entry into the world, but the great reasons why you entered into it. And we thank you in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. All right, bless everyone.